I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jay Kimmelman, co-founder of Bridge International Academies, a private network of nursery and primary schools educating the poorest students in developing countries, including Kenya, Uganda, and India. Bridge charges families roughly $6 a month for a pupil to attend school and uses economies of scale to keep costs low across its more than 400 academies. Jay started Bridge International with his wife Shannon May in 2009. They were classmates at Harvard University, both graduating in 1999. Welcome. Thank you, Jessica. What does a Bridge International Academy look like? Yeah, so it looks like a school that you would uh, see anywhere in the world. It's just that we locate our schools in communities that, as you mentioned, um, have uh, predominantly low-income populations, families who live on less than $2 a day. But it's a it's a physical school with uh, multiple classrooms and a teacher in each classroom, leveraging a lot of technology. So there's a tablet in uh, the teacher's hand from which we can push uh, scripted educational content to that teacher and collect data about what's happening. Um, but then a group of, of very eager um pupils sitting in front of that uh, teacher that they work with all day long. Our schools start um, at 7.30 and go through 5 o'clock, and we do that uh, five and a half days a week all through the year. How many students are there in each classroom, roughly? Um, It ranges between 25 and 50. You take a very analytic approach uh, to education. Your approach is called Academy in a Box. Can you describe that uh, more comprehensively? Sure. So we take an approach similar to what other large-scale global retailer service providers have done. So systematizing sort of every different aspect about what it means to provide education from what happens inside the classroom to what happens in order to get a school to come into being. And so um, for Bridge, some examples of that are all of our teachers uh, have tablets that run a custom set of applications, and we can deliver real-time instructional content to them. But then we can monitor what's happening in the classroom by collecting information about pupil performance performance and teacher performance and feed that back in a data feedback loop. So roughly every 10 days, we get a quarter of a million test scores into our system that then we can analyze and figure out this is where we're doing well, this is where we haven't hit the mark, and then have processes and systems to improve upon that. We take that approach across the whole spectrum from the inside the classroom to how we build schools to where we locate them. So it's a very data-driven approach to ensuring that we deliver upon our promise. You refer to uh, the model being similar to how global retailers think about growth. Um, You're talking about like a Starbucks or a Walmart. Is that right? That's correct. You talk about the teachers having uh, electronic tablets or nooks uh, because instruction is scripted. Everything is very standardized. Uh, And, you know, there's been some criticism as to does this thwart creativity? What is your response to that? I think it's important to think about it from the pupil perspective rather than the teacher's perspective. So, um, yeah, we have scripted guides for our teachers. That doesn't mean that we don't have a very child-centered, very creative uh, uh, approach to learning. It's just that we're not having every teacher reinvent the wheel of the best way to teach, let's say, dividing fractions every day across thousands of classrooms across the country. Think about your very best teacher that you've ever seen in a classroom delivering the best lesson that they've had. Think about trying to capture the essence of that lesson and so that many more teachers can do that, that's essentially what scripted instruction allows you to do and allows us to do. So basically every third grade on a Tuesday in April will be learning the exact same material almost verbatim. 
yeah, what examples are put on the blackboard, what type of uh, assignments are given in the classroom, the homework that is used, the the best ways to explain uh, the concept that day, that's all standardized. Now, obviously, the interaction between that, uh, that teacher and the children in the classroom, that's, of course, unique to that classroom context. And that's why we very much focus on finding, vetting, and training talented individuals from that local community to be that classroom leader. Just more on the technology front, uh, even payments are tech friendly. You know, people use mobile devices uh, to pay tuition. Can you talk more about that? Sure. All of our schools are cashless, meaning there isn't money that exchanges hands between our customers and the manager at that academy. Parents pay either by depositing at a local local bank or making, as you mentioned, mobile money transactions. And then we've developed the technology on the back end to connect in real time to the banking system and the mobile operators, process all those transactions through a proprietary billing database, and then update in real time the academy manager's smartphone. So the academy manager has real time access to exactly what's happening with the customers in uh, his or her school, as well as all the academic and operational information. And all of this happens despite the fact that our academies actually are not live connected to electricity. Now, this whole model works uh, because you are using economies of scale to keep costs low enough to justify the 5 or $6 per month that it costs a family maybe making less than $2 a day uh, to, to pay. That's right. I mean, if we were to run a single school, um, we'd have to charge something on the order of $10,000 a year. Um, But because we're amortizing these very large-scale investments we make in designing the curriculum and the technology and the processes and systems across hundreds of thousands and soon to be millions of pupils, we're able to deliver this quality education for about $6 per pupil per month. And so that economies of scale is critical in order to both reach the population that we're serving and do it in a, a financially viable way. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jay Kimmelman, co-founder of Bridge International Academies, the world's largest network of private pre-primary and primary schools educating poor students in Africa and Asia. The first Bridge International Academy opened in the Mukuru slum in Nairobi, Kenya in 2009. Prior to starting Bridge International Academies, Jay co-founded EduSoft, a web-based education assessment platform with revenues of $20 million that he sold to the publishing company Houghton Mifflin in 2004. The students at Bridge International Academies are outperforming their peers at other schools in both math and reading. Can you provide some uh, more background to that and why you think that's happening? Sure. So um, essentially, a child at Bridge learns in one year what a child at a neighboring school takes two years to master. So our educational effect sides are some of the largest seen, seen in any global intervention. If you look across countries uh, such as the ones we serve, you see teacher absenteeism rates um, north of 40%. In Kenya, 40, more than 40% of instructional time is lost because teachers aren't in the classrooms teaching. At Bridge, we have a zero, uh, less than a 1% teacher absenteeism rate. So first of all, we're able to guarantee that there is a fundamental delivery of instruction on a day-to-day basis, on an hour-to-hour basis. Part of that comes from the technology and the systems we put in place. But then within that time frame, how do you know that you're delivering the quality of instruction? So that's where our ability to deliver scripted lesson guides directly into the hands of the teachers and ensure that they're being delivered, that's a massive uh, value for our, our customers, which is what we see 
in the education results. Because of the ability for this data to come back and forth between the classroom and our, our content designers, we're able to iterate on every aspect of instruction. We do A versus B testing to determine whether this way of describing a particular uh, concept area is better than that way. And we can deploy that in real time across thousands of classrooms and determine which uh, approach is more effective academically. And we can run those experiments in real time and, and, and in parallel. So can you give an example that of, of a, a data that your content designer might look at of a, of a curriculum or a lesson for a second grade classroom um, yeah, just so to bring a, it down a, from 10,000 feet? So uh, a few months ago, um, our, our curriculum uh, designers had a hypothesis by watching videos of our classrooms. We have a, a roving video team that takes samples of our classrooms. So we have the video, we have the test results, and we have the, the scripted lesson. And there was a hypothesis that at the end of science lessons, we typically, just like many other schools, would have a an example for the, the pupils to work on by themselves. And typically, we do that as an open book uh, example, meaning that they could use the textbook as a guide. And our curriculum uh, developers had a hypothesis that for a significant percentage of pupils, that that textbook being open was essentially like an intellectual crutch, and that it wasn't forcing them to reach sort of deep enough for the, the, the material to really click. So we ran um, a, a short cycle randomized control trial. In 1,000 classrooms, we tested what would happen if after 10 days of, uh, of lessons, we would pull the textbook back. Um, and not have an open book. And in another couple thousand classrooms, we would leave it open book. What we found, we got a quarter of a million test scores come in. We found that with statistical significance, pupils gain on average around 8% uh, on understanding that content area by not having the textbook in the class. So now we now apply that to other science lessons of a similar ilk. So it's those types of learnings that you, if you can do that again and again, um, you're able to learn faster about how children learn than sort of anywhere else. Now, we talk about these content designers, and I'm thinking of like Wizard of Oz, you know, how the wizard's behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> Where are these content designers helping to perfect the curriculum of these hundreds of thousands of students sprinkled throughout uh, Africa? They're actually all over the world. We have a team in Kenya, a team in the United States, and a team in India currently. In the United States, your office is in Cambridge? Yeah, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have um, a, a small R&D hub for both our academic and our technology team. You have a background in, in education, a technology. Prior to starting uh, Bridge International Academies, you founded a company, co-founded a company called EduSoft, which basically was a web-based platform for uh, student performance assessment. How would you describe it? Uh, EduSoft was uh, the leading assessment platform uh, company for K-12 in the U.S. So we provided tools for teachers, uh school and district level administrators and, 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 and up from there to make data-driven decisions about the instruction that happens in the classroom. Now, you founded EduSoft in 2000 with another Harvard classmate, Dan Yates, and you sold the company to the publisher, uh, Houghton Mifflin. And it was, was after that sale that you and Dan decided to go travel the world. Uh, Dan went with his girlfriend to Latin America, and you visited, your, you visited yours, uh, Shannon May, in China. 
Uh, and Shannon was a classmate of yours from Harvard, but you you, you hadn't met her uh, until your fifth reunion. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Um, we were we were in the same class, um, and we always joke because we ne- we never ran into each other, and uh, our circle of friends uh, virtually don't overlap. So we always joke which one of us is making up the story about going to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we did meet at our our fifth re- fifth year reunion. Um, I was uh, in the process of uh, selling uh, our uh, EduSoft um, and then planning on uh, moving to Barcelona for a while. And uh, Shannon, whose uh, background is uh, in uh, anthropology and economic transformation, was planning to move to uh, a very poor rural village in the mountains of northeastern China. Um, so, you know, obviously very similar paths. And so I decided to skip uh, Barcelona and move to uh, a small farming village in northeastern China. It was in this village in China where the idea for Bridge International uh, came to be. Can you talk about the, the genesis of, of this idea? Sure. So Shannon and I were, were thinking sort of very big picture. Um, what for families who live uh, on less than $2 a day in the village we lived in, um, families lived for less than 70 cents a day, um, what were their challenges? What were the biggest levers to make an impact on quality of life, both for an individual or an individual family, but then at scale? And came to the conclusion that basic primary education was one of the biggest levers that you could have, both for an individual, but also at scale. There were a few different examples in the village that really um, brought this point home. So, you know, you could walk down the the path in the village and look at uh, different people's homes. And based upon the construction quality, what they were made out of, what the windows were made out of, you could then see a a strong correlation between literally the quality of of the construction of people's houses and whether they had access to a basic quality education. We live next door to um, an old gentleman uh, named Lao He. And um, he was a 70-year-old man who, for most of his life, had, uh, for livelihood, had raised uh, cashmere goats for their, uh, for their cashmere and sold that off. Um, but due to his, his age, he was no longer able physically to do that. And so he recognized that if he wasn't able to change his livelihood, that would be the end. This gentleman, though, happened to be one of uh, the individuals uh, due to the, uh, the, the previous communist era who had access and had gone successfully through a basic primary education. This man had a, had a daughter in a nearby village, and he asked his daughter to buy him a book on how to rear uh, smaller animals that didn't need so much tending. He figured out that if you raise foxes and other small animals, how much input costs there were, what would be the profit of that, how much he could sell his current goats for. And he essentially built an entirely new business model for his life. And we watched this transformation happen successfully. And if he didn't have the ability to read with real comprehension, to do the basic math and problem solving that it was needed to basically figure out this life-critical example, that could have been the end of, of a prosperous life for this man. Mm-hmm. And so seeing that really in many ways hit home just that, you know, basic education isn't just sort of, you know, we need to do it because that's what society says to do, but these are life-critical skills and fundamentally alter someone's potential. So we started digging into that area much more deeply. What was going on personally? I mean, here you are, you moved to rural China with a girlfriend whom you met very recently uh, to a completely different job in a way. Um, Was this like, oh, what a nice adventure? Just the whole experience of, you know, here you're in this uh, high tech, uh, you know, venture scene with with the sale of EduSoft and, and now you're, you know, in rural China. 
with with a woman. Yeah, it was it was a pretty big difference to move to to rural China from living in San Francisco. You know, the village we lived in was a real mountain village where you know in the winters you had forty degrees below weather, um, no indoor plumbing, no indoor heating. Uh, when I moved to China, I didn't speak a word of Chinese, and no one in the village obviously spoke a word of English. So that was a big challenge. I was essentially the village mute for the first period of time. <laughs> there were a lot of very interesting learning experiences through that. I remember having uh, a lunch early on with a group of men from the village who had sort of cajoled me into coming uh, to lunch at one of their homes. And when you're living in such uh, cold environments, uh, drinking the the local 140 proof grain alcohol is is the common practice. Uh, three meals a day. And I remember getting to the end of the lunch, and the only word that I had known at that point was the word for enough. So at one point, I, you know, enough of the alcohol or enough of the lunch. And, um, and then realizing towards the end of the meal that I was actually having uh, this lunch, this very boozy lunch, with the teachers of the local primary school. And it was a weekday, and school was still in session. And so, you know, some of these experiences were actually some of the ones that, you know, led us to understand some of the challenges that families face who, you know, are trying to access the education. Um, but for me personally, you know, it was really about learning what is life like for the, a large fraction of the world's population, but learning it personally, right? Mm-hmm. What is it like to have to go and, uh, and, and get the wood for the fire? And how much time does it actually take to do the basics of keeping warm and feeding yourself? A lot of my friends and family were asking, well, we understand Shannon's finishing off her doctoral dissertation. What do you do all day? You don't technically have a job there. What, what is it that you do all day? And, you know, the answer is really everything that it takes to live and survive, right? It, for families who live in, in these communities, there is an enormous amount that it takes to just do the basics. And that, in many ways, was the experience that we were living. And this, by the way, is a Jewish kid from Long Island, New York. <laughs> Your first school you built actually in Nairobi in the Mukuru slum, uh, which was in 2009. Why did you choose Kenya specifically? As an organization, as a company, we're very data-driven, and we started out that way. So um, once we had um, developed and designed the sort of basic business model for Bridge, the, f- the next question was, where would be the best place to start, knowing that we were always looking to be a, a, a global player? Um, so we took about uh, 25 countries across Africa and elsewhere um, and identified what we thought were the five or six key business drivers that would make success in the first country. Things like overall population size, population density, broad acceptance of private schooling, and a few others. And we, we created a spreadsheet. Kenya came to the top of the list. So we bought our airplane tickets and moved to Kenya. Without ever having been there before, you just kind of... We had done research in a few countries. Um, so we had been there before from a research perspective, but not, a, not from a living perspective. Um, when Shannon and I got married, we had an extended honeymoon um, throughout Africa, of which a significant portion, if not the majority, was actually doing a lot of firsthand primary research in the communities that, um, that we were thinking about serving. Well, Shannon and you knew that you wanted to be life partners. How did you know that you wanted to embark on a professional career together? Was that just an easy, obvious choice? Um, you know, I think it, it came from a, a shared passion around the, the type of work we wanted to do and the, the type of impact that we wanted to have. It wasn't sort of a, a grand plan when, uh, you know, we were on our first date in San Francisco. But, you know, I think when the stars aligned, you know, you, you go for it. And, you know, it's been an incredible journey ever since. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jay Kimmelman, co-founder of Bridge International Academies, the world's largest network of private, pre-primary, and 
primary schools, educating poor students in Africa and Asia. Bridge International Academy's investors include Bill Gates, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, Amidier Network, and Kosla Ventures. I want to talk about uh, raising capital. Uh, you decided instead of it being a f- nonprofit endeavor that this would be a for-profit company. Uh, what was the posture of investors to your idea of global, you know, of, of retailing basically education? Initially? Yeah, initially. Yeah, it was pretty. Um, it was a pretty difficult road. Um, you know, there were. You know, you you. I thought that given our my history of um, you know running and uh, starting and, and selling a successful uh, startup, that uh, that road to fundraising might be a bit easier. But given the, um, if you will, the craziness of the idea and the scale of the idea, um, I think it was a it, it was a pretty tough climb. I mean, first we had to. First, we were starting a business to provide education for the poorest families uh, on the planet. And to get people to understand that uh, poor customers are no different than uh, wealthy customers, the only difference is that they have less money, um, was 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 a big challenge and that they would that they spend money on education a huge challenge uh, in terms of getting people to understand that I mean despite the fact that you know families who live on less than two dollars a day they currently spend fifty billion dollars a year on nursery and primary school that was something that uh, was very difficult to get across mm. um, and then when you add into that that we were going to then run the world's largest chain of schools done anywhere in the world in the some of the toughest business climates and because of the lack of infrastructure in um, our communities and countries we were going to work, we were going to have to be completely vertically integrated. We were going to have to build our own construction company, our own, our own real estate acquisition company, run our own call center, do our own publishing and printing. In many ways, the idea was just too big for people to sort of grapple with, particularly sort of at the idea stage. So it was a it was a pretty big hurdle. Initially, we funded the company ourselves. Now, was there one or two early investors that opened the floodgates for you? Who, who was that first or one or two believers? So our, our earliest large-scale investor was um, Omidyar. So um, the Omidyar Network, which was founded by uh, Pierre Omidyar, the, the founder of eBay, was our, our initial largest sort of anchor investor. Um, and they saw, you know, they had made a specific decision that they were going to focus on markets and customers like the ones that we were going to serve. And obviously, um, Pierre, through his eBay experiences, understood the power and economies of scale and the power of technology to make a market much more servable. And then as we started to scale out, um, education-focused uh, investors like, such as Learn Capital and then large-scale venture firms who see huge market potential and teams that have pr- you know proven the ability to execute like NEA and Kosla were able to see wow, there's a $50 billion market and only one provider that has any credible uh, story about providing this, that's a pretty attractive opportunity. Did you have self-doubt in the early days when you had all this uh, all, all this skepticism and you'd go back to Kenya and you would try to you know, construct that first school without you know, electricity and get those first customers? And uh, from a granular perspective, were you like, wow, this is more of a forced march than I had anticipated because you didn't have experience on the ground in Kenya ever. Yeah, it was, you know, it was it was of course a challenge in the beginning. I think the challenges like you mentioned of 
oh, wow, how are we going to build a school at this price point? Or why do the, you know, the stones keep get stolen from the construction site? Or how are we going to get the, the title searches done to figure out that we have the rights to this plot of land? Or, uh, you know, all of those sort of a- operational challenges were very real. The thing that continued, that, that gave us and continues to give us uh, so much confidence is just when you go uh, into our communities and talk to the the customers, the families that we serve, or in, early on the families we wanted to serve, just the the amount of focus and energy and passion they have about what they want for their kids and that education is going to be and is their priority of what they do with their household budget. It was always so clear that there was such a need and such a market that already existed that you could do a lot better serving. That that was probably the most sustaining sort of element of why this made sense and why it was obvious that something was going to be possible. Now, what other problems arose that were just so outside of your realm of imagination? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, we work in... Um, very difficult business climates, right, where um, competitive business practices include uh, leveling claims of devil worshiping um, on on new businesses, right? It's not particular to bridge, but that's the standard of, you know, competitive business practices in a, in a community. You know, I remember being with, uh, with, a, with a group of parents who talked about this and, you know, they said, well, how do we know that, um, that you're not, you know, a group of people who, you know, devil worship and try to sacrifice and eat our children? And I'd say, have any children been Eaten. You know, just really bringing it back down to the details about, you know, what it is we were there to do. What have we done? Are, you know, folks happy with the quality of the education? Yes. And sort of, you know, dealing with it as a as a practical matter. Um, the bigger challenges, though, that we faced on the ground were things, um, you know, such as how do you how do you construct schools uh, at the right price point and so quickly? We currently um, build a school uh, from start to finish in about 14 calendar days. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you line up a supply chain and the logistics uh, and the local labor and all those pieces uh, to put together? And you know, all of it's about a lot of details and a lot of processes, from how you find teachers to how you train them to how you build it, how you run the supply chain. Um, so it's really mostly about getting in there, getting through the details, getting the real data, and doing the hard work. Incidentally, I mean, you're most of the time in Africa, but you do go back and forth between you know Africa and Asia and and you know Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, to the 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 developed world. Do you have a hard time at all? with kind of the adjustments or are you kind of impervious to that type of shifting at this point? Well, I, I spend 98% of my time in Kenya and I've lived in I've lived in Kenya for the last seven years and that's where my family is, my two girls. So in many in many ways, you know, you know, home is is Kenya right now. And, and yeah, I feel pretty uh, acclimated to our to our life there. In fact, uh, you know, our I, I I tend to have more issues living now in uh, in the in traveling to the developed world than uh, than than where we're we're more accustomed to now. Like what? Uh, last time I was uh, visiting investors in San Francisco, I uh, got my first case of food poisoning in uh, five years <laughs> at a sushi restaurant. Um, uh, my, my laptop was stolen two days ago uh, yeah. <laughs> in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In many ways, uh, you start to see more similarities and than than differences as as you start to sort of be more uh, a person who is accustomed to a particular life. And you have two girls, children. You probably never expected, uh, you know, growing up on Long Island in New York, that you'd be raising two girls in 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 Kenya. 
No, certainly not. Uh, not predicted. Um, you know, we we actually brought the girls with us on this trip to the to the U.S. and um, I had to travel back from Kenya with my two girls by myself because Shannon had to go for something else. <laughs> so two girls on a twenty six hour flight is is quite a uh, quite a fun experience. Chloe is uh, learning for the first time about uh, 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 traffic lights, you know, what red light and green light, since we have very few in mm. uh, in Kenya, and uh, elevators and, and, and skyscrapers. So it's it's uh, it's interesting to uh, to have to uh, to educate your children on a, on, a, on a whole sphere of life that you grew up with, which is not the norm for them now. What do you enjoy doing outside of Bridge? What might I not know about you? Are you a falcon expert? Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, when uh, growing up, uh, I was a, uh, a performing children's magician and clown, but not uh, not anymore, uh, except for my own children. <laughs> Tell me more. Uh, yeah, so you know, growing up uh, started out as a hobby, and then sort of became an amateur profession for a while uh, through high school and into college. Um, yeah, I used to perform at birthday parties and uh, things of that sort. And uh, for the very little ones, I'd get in my you know red clown nose and giant feet and costumes. And for the older ones, you know my magic top hat. It, there were a lot of lifelong lessons that you know you learned from uh, from thinking about an audience and thinking about people's biases and their perceptions. Because in many ways, magic is you know entirely based upon what people's biased expectations are, and, and from a ma- magician's perspective, how you take advantage of that to amuse them. I guess the other areas, you know, that uh, is, I guess, somewhat amusing or, or interesting is um, I was also a vacuum salesman for a little while, door to door. Why vacuum sales? Uh, it was uh, it was after high school and before going to to university. Um, I felt that I, as I saw a lot of my my peers sort of go down the obvious routes of what to do, uh, in either in order to impress sort of uh, folks in uh, in coming into university or building their careers, I felt like it was the opportunity to see a very different uh, uh, way of being, a very different uh, career path. So I saw an ad in a newspaper that said, "Hey, you want to sell uh, vacuum cleaners door to door?" And so um, I jumped at it and uh, started doing it. And what aside from the like the Willie Loman like you know making the sale <laughs> uh, perspective, w- w- what else was surprising about you know selling vacuums and you know that th- that individual encounter with the the potential purchaser? I think mostly it was about the perseverance, about sort of how many people you needed to talk to. Uh, we sold very expensive vacuum cleaners uh, uh, who weren't, uh, you know, naturally uh, in the market for a very expensive vacuum cleaner. Um, and, you know, the number of doors that are slammed in your face or the number of people who ask you to leave their premises, although not, oftentimes not as nicely. But, you know, the ability or the need to sort of keep strong and and keep at it, That I, I'd say that, that perseverance piece was pretty uh, formative. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jessica. My guest has been Jay Kimmelman, co-founder of Bridge International Academies. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.